Hey guys, welcome back to the most bizarre show on the internet. I am the one, the only Shane, along with my co-host over here, Ghosty. Hey, and uh, what's up, guys? You know, we're gonna get into a fun one today, man. Uh, before we uh, hint at who our guest is today, though, Ghost, why don't you let them know what they can do to help us out and help uh, boost up the show? Well, if you want to help boost up the show and get bizarre encounters everywhere go to apple itunes and leave a five-star rating and review uh if you don't want to leave the review if it's too much just go over to spotify hit the five star and walk away also don't forget to hit up bizarre encounters on social media or instagram and telegram and uh yeah uh, send us dms you know we get back and forth with with any listener that that kind of comes out and wants to share a bizarre encounter or uh just anything you know we, hey just drop us a line and say hi uh, if you, uh, like that, you can, uh, also catch early releases on Patreon on my side at my third eye podcast at, well, actually patreon.com forward slash my third eye podcast. That way I, people don't get a little confused there. And don't forget to hit us up with emails too, uh, over there at, uh, bizarre encounters at outlook.com. And, uh, if anybody else wants to get the other side of the Patreon, uh, which was, also early access to the show, of course, and uh, also live access to the show. If you guys want to pop in and be some audience members, you can come on uh, check out the Open Minds Media Patreon. Um, another way you can always support the show, which is always appreciated, is you can come and uh, donate to the show on Anchor. Make it so we can keep the lights on in both of our studios and make it so that we can keep producing some awesome, awesome content for you guys. Uh, you can also go and get yourself some awesome Bizarre Encounters merch. Uh, do yourself a favor, and you know you love the show. Go and uh, get one of our awesome logo designs, and then you can wear it, tell your friends about it. You can make it into a conversation piece, man, and you never know what it might spark up when somebody sees a cool-ass shirt with a UFO and a Sasquatch on it. So definitely go and check out the Open Minds Media Store. And uh, Ghost, why don't you tell them a little bit about uh, our, our partner in crime, actually? Yeah, our partner in crime over at Crypto Theology. Uh, he's a local... Uh, boy here in Pennsylvania, which is awesome, uh, support uh, local businesses. But uh, he teamed up to uh, give us our uh, personal uh, Bizarre Encounter Combat uh, t-shirt logo, which I ordered one and ordered one for a friend for Christmas. So super comfortable shirts. I love them. Uh, I got to get more and make sure you hit them up on uh, Instagram. Shoot him a message. You know, he'll he'll hit you back and uh, go get one of these awesome shirts at CryptoTheology.com. 
And uh, everything that we have mentioned, of course, we try to make it quick and easy for you guys. We put it all under the link tree, including the uh, collab designs, uh, social media, the Telegram. And I uh, recently set up a Discord, too. So we got a little bit of a Discord now going for uh, Open Minds Media slash this show. So, yeah, quick and easy. Go and check it out. Uh, L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash Bizarre Encounters. And with that. Today, Shane and I have Alex Petikov on. And uh, Alex, how are you? Let people know where they can find you, the work you do. I know you're a filmmaker. I've seen some of your your documentaries. And uh, when Shane told me you were coming on, I was actually really stoked because I couldn't figure out how to get a hold of you because I'm half retarded. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually pretty surprised I got a hold of you as easy as I did. And I was pretty excited for the show, too. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, whatever, good place to find me, get in touch with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a filmmaker, uh, cryptozoology researcher. That's what I kind of like to call myself. Um, you know, cryptozoology is sort of an interesting topic. So I'm, I'm very interested in cryptids and the stories surrounding them and primarily Bigfoot. So uh, where you can find some of my work is on the Small Town Monsters YouTube channel. Uh, I do a series called a documentary series called Bigfoot Beyond the Trail also done stuff on the Lake Champlain, a monster, a mystery, big cats in the eastern part of the United States, Loch Ness, other stuff as well. But Small Town Monsters is a good place to find some of my work, as well as my website, Petakov Media, P-E-T-A-K-O-V, media.com. And it's just got links to all the stuff I mentioned. So that's a great place to check some of that out. So uh, I guess kind of going back to the beginning, uh, one thing I always like to start with is like, what started your fascination with uh, Sasquatch in particular, or I guess cryptids in general? Was it an experience? Was it just, uh, you know, something that sparked your interest as a kid? But what, what kind of got you rolling? Yeah, it was definitely more of an interest as a kid. I mean, I hear a lot of people in this topic. It's, it's one of those two things. They either got into it out of curiosity or they had some kind of encounter. My, mine is the curiosity side. So when I was younger, my dad told me the story of the Yeti and he gave me this figurine of shadow box. They used to make these cool Loch Ness, Bigfoot, Yeti kind of things. And it had this scroll look like an ancient papyrus kind of looking uh, scroll, which is really neat. It told the whole story of the Yeti. Something about that. I was on, in the mountains of New Hampshire on a ski trip then and just kind of the setting. It seemed right. I'm like, this is interesting. So I started watching a lot of documentaries as a kid, reading books on the topics and um, getting into Bigfoot. And then obviously, Loch Ness Monster, Lake Monsters, other cryptids, it kind of came naturally. And then later in life, uh, after I got out of school, I sort of said, well, I kind of want to look into this stuff myself. You know, I was an armchair researcher who's always interested in it, but it was just sort of like a little hobby on the side. Nothing I active, actively would go and look at, you know, or look out, go out in the woods and stuff and uh, get out in the field. But I would read a lot of this stuff and I'd read others' work and watch others' work. And I said, hey, man, you know, why don't I just start making documentaries on my own? And I, that's basically what I started doing. And uh, since about 2015, I've been doing documentaries on these topics and getting out in the field. And I've always been really big in the outdoors and been a big backpacker and a hiker, uh, huge into camping. So it kind of all meshed pretty well together, I think. So that's sort of how it all kind of came together. And here we are. So I guess going into your very first documentary, because that's a really good place to start. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is exactly, uh, what you did, and um, I guess when it came out. Yeah, so, oh man, I don't know if I want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the first real cryptid documentary I did was short film called Mystery at Loch Ness in 2015 or so. 
And it was basically, I traveled to Loch Ness, which was always kind of a bucket list item. And it was just a short, I think it was only 12 minutes long, just a little documentary of me as I filmed around the lake. You know, I look at it now, I'm like, wow, that is, <laughs> that's a real piece of work there. Don't watch it. It's, it, it's an old, you know, old school at this point for me. So you all got to start uh, somewhere, though. <laughs> yeah, obviously, as artists, you know, we're obviously very critical of our earlier stuff, but it was just kind of a jumping off point. And um, I explored the Loch Ness mystery. And I actually came out of the Loch Ness story a little bit more skeptical than initially, um, which I think is sort of interesting uh, as somebody who's always been into this, these kinds of topics. I saw Loch Ness. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. Don't get me wrong, but I felt it just wasn't large enough conducive to support a large, you know, growing up, at least you think, oh, plesiosaurs or whatever mysterious creatures. There's many of them. There's so much space, but you learn about the ecology of Loch Ness, how there actually doesn't support that many fish species. It's a very difficult lake to kind of exist in. And the idea that maybe things are coming in from the sea, but well, there's dams now and there's a, sh a shallow river that basically goes through a city, the city of Inverness. So I came out a little bit skeptical of Nessie. I thought, well, maybe it's certain things that people are seeing. I don't know if I could say there's you know, a remnant population of some kind of plesiosaur-like creature. That's a bit of a stretch. Um, so I've, I've kind of put Loch Ness on the back burner a little bit, even though I have sitting right next to me Loch Ness coaster uh, with some <laughs> kind of a law from Scotland. Nice. So, so yeah, that was, I mean, the film, I basically just sort of presented here some of the theories and that sort of thing. Uh, but this is just my sort of reflection upon that. And then actually I got into a few years later into the Lake Champlain monster mystery, which is ironic because that was only about two and a half, three hours from where I grew up in the New England area. You know, that's in Vermont, bordering New York and in the Canadian province of Quebec. And I never really looked into that one yet. That one, in my opinion, has of all the lake monsters in the world, I think it has the most chance of actually being some sort of a plausible potential biological animal, whether or not it's, yeah, I, I don't necessarily lean towards a plesiosaur type thing. I think more maybe something turtle or amphibian like, but the lake, Lake Champlain is gigantic, 124 miles long, 12 miles widest, 420 something feet deep at the deepest. Uh, it's one of the most biodiverse lakes in North America. A ton, I mean, the fishing there is world-class, a gigantic sturgeon, 10 feet long coming out of there in the past. So you know, it's, I kind of gravitated away from Loch Ness and more towards Lake Champlain, which is sometimes also called America's Loch Ness. So, uh, but again, I was always more interested in something that was across the pond than something that was practically in my backyard. So it kind of, it was a bit of a role reversal there. It was kind of the same way with, with Loch Ness. And then, you know, you, you grow up and you get a little older, older. Now I never got a chance to go over there, but you know, you watch people's other people's research and, you know, they're digging into it and the, the thoughts that come out from that. And you're like, eh, I, 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 I don't know if I can buy Loch Ness anymore. And then you bring up, you know, champ and that's something that, and, and people from this show, uh, know that like water cryptids are like my least favorite cryptid mm -hmm. to like look into for some reason. Now, I don't know why they, they just always kind of bore me, but champ never really bored me because like you said it's so diverse you're pulling out 10 foot sturgeon it takes sturgeon to get that big a lot of years a lot of years and if not what 50 to 100 maybe and so something big could be lurking around i mean it's got it's got the food and it's got the places to hide 
Yeah. I mean, uh, and just the history of that lake, if I could just add real quick, um, is so interesting. I mean, it was formerly part of the ocean not that long ago, as, as we believe as recently as 10, 10 to 12,000 years ago. And there were whales and other marine animals that lived in that area that, I mean, they found the skeleton of beluga whales right on the shores of Lake Champlain in Vermont. That's actually the state fossil of the state of Vermont is a beluga whale. They're digging a railroad bed and they found this, this whale fossil. I mean, incredible. And these sorts of things are in that area. So a lot of the fish species in Lake Champlain actually have adapted from formerly saltwater animals, saltwater fish, especially you have things like the landlocked Atlantic salmon that live in the lake and now travel up rivers to spawn. It's just very interesting, just the history of that area. And you have Native American stories of allegedly some kind of a strange creature, other things as well. But it's just, in my view, if there is a possible lake monster anywhere in the world that might exist and, you know, it wouldn't be some kind of behemoth 50 foot creature, but something on the smaller side, maybe some kind of a turtle or something amphibian. Like I feel like Lake Champlain has a stronger case at least than, than others. That's just from my research. And we've talked to so many witnesses up there as well. I've been up there multiple times and it's, it's a very interesting place. Not much I can say. Just to play a devil's advocate for uh, Loch Ness, Loch Ness. Um, <clears throat> one idea that I like to entertain is that it could possibly be uh, some type of giant salamander and, you know, they may be extinct by now or, I mean, they could even be at the bottom of the lake kind of, you know, in a hibernation status most of the time. But um, at least like the surgeon photo, I know that's that's come out as a hoax. That was a fake. It was made by a model maker. Um, so I don't think that there's any type of like giant creature in Lake Loch Ness, but I still kind of en entertain the idea that it could possibly be a salamander. But as far as uh, Lake Champlain goes, definitely possible for there being a plesiosaur. Um, more so, I feel like you guys were saying than uh, anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the salamander theory. I've heard that for Lake Champlain, too. Um, and it's interesting. It certainly is. And I think it seems like there was formerly more activity or more sightings yearly at Loch Ness even 50, 60 years ago. There seemed to be more um, uh, evidence or more expeditions and think people going out there looking for stuff. So where's and what's interesting now with Loch Ness is that it's the biggest tourist draw in all of Scotland. So, I mean... It, it generates so much revenue annually for you know Scotland as a tourist spot, whereas Lake Champlain, I mean, almost nobody goes there except for the odd cryptid hunter for Champ. There's many different cities and communities that are right on the lakeshore. People go there for fishing, boating, uh, you know, summer recreation, uh, 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 ice fishing in the winter. They don't go for Champ. It's actually kind of a uh, not really well known outside of cryptid circles. There's local stories and that sort of thing. There may be a couple places that embrace Champ in the Vermont and New York area, but it's really nothing compared to Loch Ness. I mean, nine out of 10 people go to Loch Ness for one reason, the legend of Nessie. And if you go to Lake Champlain, you'd be hard to press to even find maybe nine out of 10 people. people those people are going there for something other than Champ. It'd be hard to even find that one person out of 10 that might be going for Champ. Maybe one out of a hundred might be going and they have some awareness of champ. So it's, it's interesting because as again, I, I said, I feel that there's some strong possibilities that there's something going on in, in Lake Champlain. I don't know what it is, but I mean, you have stories of alleged echolocation, you have uh, pieces of video uh, photos like the Sandra Mancy photo, which to this day still hasn't really been debunked. And, you know, I've spoken to Sandra Mancy in the past. I felt she was pretty interesting and, you know, there's been various attempts to kind of establish where that location was. And uh, it's just it, it's a very, very fascinating story with Champ. And I mean, we could go into a whole Champ 
uh, tangent, I'm sure. My my thing is, uh, it, with Nessie, I, I think the original photo did get kind of debunked. And I think that's what really sparked me going down. Eh, okay, another hoax. But, it, but like you said, everybody that goes to Loch Ness, 9 out of 10 people are there to, to try and see Nessie. Where you can't find maybe one person that knows about Champ. Now, I know about Champ. You know, you know about him. But right. it, I can't picture people being in that area and not knowing about it. Other than maybe like a couple small towns that, you know, have a monument dedicated yeah, to champ exactly. or whatever you know what i mean they've embraced but, it a little bit yeah and that was a thing but, in the past in the 80s and the 90s when it kind of became popular with the sander mancy photo being in the cover of the new york times and other you know kind of incidents there were documentaries there was a little bit of an embrace you know people said okay well this mm -hmm. is cool we should do what they do at loch ness but that fizzled out even when i did my champ series called on the trail of champ back in filmed it in 2017 came out in 2018 I noticed that, you know, there was, it depended on who you talked to. Some people had a real, real reluctance to talk about anything champ related. They thought it was silly. Um, you'd see places in Burlington, Vermont, that kind of embraced champ a little bit, but it was sort of a gimmicky thing. But then you'd go into gas stations, random spots, talk to people. Hey, have you ever heard, seen anything weird in the lake? Oh yeah. You know, my cousin said he saw champ while he was fishing by Juniper Island or, oh, we were at the park in Burlington and we saw this massive hump. People are, it's like, they're willing to tell you their stories, but, you know, the, as soon as you start talk, talking about, you know, champ, please, you sore, they kind of get off put, but they, they've seen weird things in the lake. They might not necessarily even call it champ, but they'll describe to you, oh, you know, I might, you know, we were in a gas station at one point filming a different series on champ. And we talked to people and like three people in the line all had stories or knew somebody that had a story or, oh, my high school professor had seen it. He had been on some of those documentaries, like the cashier was telling, it was, it was funny, you know? And then you talk to people. I mean, one of the guys I spoke to, um, was a owned a bait and tackle shop in Burlington. Uh, I believe he's either a Korean or Vietnam vet and um, said that him and five other guys were fishing in the late 1950s and saw, and they were fishing and you know, they got the fish, throw the excess in, you know, keep, keep their catch. And they, some kind of creature with a dinosaur like head was coming out of the water and was basically eating kind of the remnants of the fish stuff. And they looked at each other and said, you know, what do we tell people? He said, don't mm -hmm. tell anybody anything. They're going to think we're crazy. This is late 1950s. So, I mean, socially, that probably would have been, you know, these guys are talking about seeing a dinosaur in the lake. You know, that would have been very unusual. So they didn't tell anyone until 20, 30 years later when there was this big media blitz regarding champs. So th that's interesting to me because, you know, why would these guys sit on that story and why would they make that sort of thing up? I just found that really interesting. It was one of the more interesting interviews I've, I've uh, people have talked to about the topic. Yeah, and with with people holding on to stories, I mean, it, times have really changed since then. Because yeah. I mean, hell, even ten, fifteen years ago, if you even mentioned Sasquatch, people thought you were crazy. You know what I mean? And yeah. now it's getting more <laughs> mainstream and accepted. Um, I always floated around the the idea with Champ. Could it be possibly a sturgeon that is you know pushing a thousand years old? I mean, if they grow as big as what you know people have caught and who know i mean they, they know that they they live many many years i mean reports of them 100 years older or, or more and if they don't have uh any known predator and a lake that size fish do normally grow to yeah. the size of their surroundings it's not far-fetched but that doesn't explain the dinosaur-like head that pops yeah, exactly. up and that that's 
what always gets me. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, it could be this, but they don't have a head like that. Yeah. I can think of just a few settings at the top of my head where people described a head coming out and, you know, actively looking. And there's even one story relayed to me by Joseph Citro, who was a Vermont kind of folklorist, wrote a lot of different stories about Bigfoot legends, ghost stuff in Vermont and Champ, of course. And it was a story he'd been told from a lady who had a house kind of on the edge of the lake. And as the sun was setting, there was a plane flying over the lake and she had noticed this creature come out of the water and was literally watching this plane with its head and turning and watched the plane go over. And it was like a dinosaur like head and then just kind of proceeded to go on. Um, and there's the sighting uh, at the, at the our family boathouse north of Burlington at the mouth of the Winooski river. There's a lot of sightings tend to take place at the mouths of the river, which is interesting because that's where a lot of fish go to spawn. A lot of the larger fish hang out there. There's a lot of been, there, there's seven or eight different rivers that feed into Lake Champlain. And at the Our Family Boathouse was the famous sighting uh, where they had seen these two of these creatures separately come out of the water, essentially, right kind of on, right near their property. So there's a lot of the sightings that are just, they don't make any conventional kind of sense. So they fit a sort of pattern of a dinosaur-like creature, but does that mean there is a dinosaur in the lake? I mean, in my opinion, probably not. Highly unlikely, but maybe, I mean, my kind of personal favorite theory is some sort of strange, large turtle-like creature that has turtles kind of elongate their necks quite a bit and actually articulate them a little bit too. So maybe something like that. I've talked to folks that swear up and down what they saw was a massive turtle. Two eyewitnesses I know of that said it looked like a gigantic turtle, kind of an extended neck. So it's, a, it's an interesting, you know, once you kind of start diving into it, it's a very interesting topic just with a lot of different descriptions and the old stories going back to the 1870s of people seeing the Great Lake Champlain sea monster or sea serpent, as it was called at the time. It's kind of been it's had its heyday well before Loch Ness. I mean, it, this this was known. P.T. Barnum had a thirty thousand dollar bounty on Champ in the 1870s, well before anyone even knew what Loch Ness was. So it's had you know, ebbs and flows in terms of popular culture and it kind of had a little bit of resurgence recently and it's sort of died down again as a topic. So at least relating to uh, Lake Champlain, has anybody uh, enter- ever entertained the idea of it possibly being some type of like giant water snake? Because if you kind of view into that, um, it could easily hide within caverns and the neck popping up could, you know, just be part of its, you know, long spine, essentially, if it's some type of like water snake. Um but then, yeah, I feel like it would be able to move a lot more easily through the lake and probably hide a lot more easily. And there could be, you know, a hole that's only yay big and it could probably fit its entire body in it where you'd walk, you'd go past the hole and not even think anything of it. But there could be some type of giant, you know, water snake essentially living in there. Well, it gets weird. I've, I've been told a story about somebody seeing what they described as two, two stories, actually, of seeing what looked like a black kind of a three stories now that I think about it four actually <laughs> i'm kind of running <laughs> running through my mental archives one was a guy i'd actually spoken to had talked about seeing um what you know, this guy had said he had seen champ on the shores of lake champlain and it looked like a plesiosaur type creature it even had uh, it had scratches on the side of it like a whale would or like a manatee would and it was on a beach and you know, it saw it go into the water and then this person had said another occasion they were in on the new york side near bullwagga bay and saw thought they saw this black pipe kind of on the, you know, muddy section near the lake and they threw something at it and it kind of like whipped its head and, and kind of proceeded to go to the water and it was some kind of a large snake. There's another sighting from a, 
I think it was Joe Sarzinski's book about champ describing this black snake scene coiled around ice during the winter and proceeding to actually go into the water. And then another sighting was of this creature crossing a road. And it was like a gunmetal gray description uh, that was also in Sarzinski's book of this guy driving on the New York side of the road or New York side of the lake on the road and saw this thing like in the road and couldn't pass because there was this, what he thought was some kind of a pipe, but it was a snake-like creature. And then uh, SUNY professor Philip Rines, who is a researcher of CHAMP there in the 70s and 80s, who's involved in the St. Romancy photo, he had claimed he had seen a gigantic eel, what he believed was an eel. I don't know if he ever described it as being CHAMP, but had described seeing this creature while scuba diving in a section of the lake and this absolutely enormous you know, eel with fangs had seen it in the water. And I mean, he said, well, maybe because of the goggles, it seemed bigger, but he apparently was pretty frightened by seeing this thing and decided to get out of the water after that. So there's four sightings of an eel snake-like creature. A lot of the descriptions from the 1800s and prior do describe it as being more eel-like or snake-like. I mean, they called it the serpent scare down in the Whitehall, New York area. Um, in the 1870s, and they described it as being very serpent-like. You know, it wasn't until 20th century where you had more of the descriptions of the plesiosaur-like or maybe seeing the body, even flippers, that sort of thing, and into the 21st century as well. Just to uh, entertain that idea even more, too, there's a lot of uh, Native American folklore relating to uh, water serpents. Uh, one in particular yes. is Uctena. I don't know. No, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but U-K-T-E-N-A. And it's a antlered water serpent. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, th- any of these sightings necessarily had antlers, but just, you know, th- there's a lot of Native American lore relating back to giant water serpents. So when it comes to a lot of these cryptid sightings, um, I don't know, I feel like I take the Native American lore into consideration more than anything. Um, because even, you know, even if they are things that are extinct now, uh, I feel like there's a lot of remnants of things that were around um, in Native American lore. And then we kind of just added our spin onto it kind of like you were saying with uh people adding the flippers and everything else just because yeah. people playing telephone everybody starts adding different details and it pulls away from what it originated from but yeah i mean it's actually really interesting in lake champlain context because the native americans there you had two distinct groups on one side on the vermont and new england side you had the abenakis they were algonquin kind of speaking people they were a little bit looser kind of banded they had different groups a little more sparsely kind of populated, whereas across the lake, you had the Iroquois, you had the Mohawk and, you know, the the ideas of the Confederacy there. And he's much larger, much more organized than the Abenakis. And they would go to war with the Abenakis. um, And crossing the lake was one way that both both peoples interacted with their respective sides of the lake, but they both independently had stories of some kind of a horned serpent, Pitascog, Tadaskok. There's a couple different stories, but they also, there are a few islands in Lake Champlain and actually down to Lake George too, where rattlesnakes, you get pretty large rattlesnakes, Eastern uh, rattlesnakes that kind of get in there. Um, that can be huge. I mean, that you see people see them swimming. I've actually seen uh, that wasn't a rattlesnake, but I did see a snake swimming through the water on the Winooski river side of the lake when I was filming, but uh, I have heard stories of rattlesnakes and there's actually kind of a snake island sort of thing over there i don't know if it's called serpent island there's serpent you know there's serpent uh mountain there's like different little areas that kind of describe some of the the local legend i mean that could be referring to actual just snakes but it is interesting that they talked about that in context of the, of the lake and 
wanting to kind of pay tribute when they'd use the waters and they'd be very cautious. And I'm sure they use it to scare their women and children. Oh, don't go too close to the water or, you know, the great horned serpent will get you just like many cultures use that. I know people that grew up in the Vermont area and maybe their family owned a summer camp or their family owned a summer cabin that they would go to and they would tell the kids, you know, no, don't swim past that because champ will get you. You know, that's just a friendly way of keeping the kids from going out and possibly drowning, but you're using a, a legend to kind of do that. And that, that exists with other things as well with Bigfoot stories and up here in New Hampshire too. I've heard people saying stories of the wood devils, which is a kind of Bigfoot like creature that they would scare their kind of kids not to go too far into the woods and not get lost by with that sort of story. So, but yeah, the native stories are obviously really interesting. Um, they were there for a long time when it comes to Lake Champlain too, they would have seen the transformation from at least the ancestors of, of a lot of these people that kind of, the hunter-gatherer groups that moved into the area, they would have seen the transformation from uh, basically glacial to a part of the ocean. And then as the ocean and the glaciers receded in Canada, they would have seen that turn into a lake. So uh, they would have seen all sorts of marine life. And actually, there's theories that people moved into the Lake Champlain area because there was seal hunting and other aquatic animals that you could hunt. And that's actually what brought a lot of people into that area. So really interesting. That actually makes me wonder, too, if uh, there's a lot of, going back to the Native American lore, uh, a lot of these water serpents, they have reference to there being like a, like a mystical stone or whatever you want to call it, or like a mystical scale mm-hmm. that if you get it, um, you know, you'll collect some kind of power or you'll have good fortune. Um, so going back to Native American tales, in the very beginning of it, it makes me wonder if there was just serpents that were bigger, that were maybe just kind of remnants from prehistoric time, and they killed them all off, of course, trying to collect whatever they thought was something magic in it. And uh, so the story still stayed along. So then as it translates, people start seeing smaller snakes and then they still talk about those older snakes. And now we get to a point where there was something that was actually there. It got hunted into extinction. And now it's more of like uh, people are expecting to see it because of the old story. So now anything that is relatively serpent-like or anything that moves in the water, um, people may assume is still that. And I mean... There may, may be still a couple of them left, who, who really knows, but uh, I don't know, just, just a different way to entertain it is maybe it was something that was rampant in the lake, and yeah, people just killed them off, and then just stories kind of transitioned through time, and then, you know, just being humans, we uh, hear these old Native American tales, and then we spark a new interest right. in them, and then we kind of take it into our own direction, do what we do with them. Yeah, it's interesting how folklore and, and those sorts of things work, yeah. But uh, I definitely want to get into uh, some of the Sasquatch stuff that you've done. Um, but before we get into that, because I know that'll probably be a pretty heavy part of the uh, conversation, because Sas- or Ghost and I definitely like to get into some Sasquatch stuff. <laughs> um, what are some of the other cryptids and different things that you have uh, done documentaries on, I guess, that may not be as commonly known, such as Champ? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I did a documentary called Lions of the East. I started that actually in 2019, 2018, 2019. And I launched it literally like a week before COVID happened. So that kind of was unfortunate because it basically, I had to cancel premiere. It was a whole big thing, but that focused on sightings of uh, mystery big cats. So mountain lions in the Eastern part of the U S so primarily the new England area. So the Northeast mountain lions were once native to this region, but they're now ex- officially extinct, but there's a lot of funny business going on and, people having sightings, uh, actual DNA evidence has been discovered that's kind of been shut down by state authorities or ignored. 
you know, I don't want to say it's a conspiracy, but as one biologist put it to me, I don't, you know, it's basically a conspiracy. That's what he said in regards to evidence that uh, had been kind of downplayed by the states. And it's very bizarre. There's a lot of distrust between the public and local officials and state officials regarding the topic. And this is not just the New England area. I hear these same stories from Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Virginia, all over the place, everywhere I've been, you know, because we, we do a lot of Bigfoot stuff, we travel different areas. We hear a lot of the other stories. And, you know, I originally did this documentary because at some of these events, okay, we've got uh, some, my own uh, mountain lions over here <laughs> causing, <laughs> causing a ruckus. We've got Braxy, the cryptid cat. He's, he's, oh, I see there's another one yeah, behind you. There. I was about to say, I always that got one's cats a good chilling. tawny, tawny color. So that works for a uh, mountain lion color. But yeah, it was just, I got a lot of stories at events. I'd ask people for Bigfoot stories and other stories, and they'd tell me, oh, I haven't seen a Bigfoot, but I saw a mountain lion in my yard in Vermont. I'm like, well, they're not supposed to be there, technically. You ask the state, they'll say, no, they're not here. And then in 2011, a uh, mountain lion was actually killed on a road in near Milford, Connecticut, of all places, which is about an hour outside of New York City. We're talking one of the most densely populated parts of the U.S. This thing's genetic makeup, they did an autopsy, came from the Black Hills of South Dakota. So it traveled all the way that from that distance, from South Dakota to Connecticut, and then I actually ended up meeting a police officer who claimed to have seen a mountain lion a few days before this thing was killed, a couple miles up the road, and nobody believed him. He was on patrol, saw this thing cross the road, and then a few days later, it gets killed right down the street, practically, and um, his sighting was confirmed. So it was just a deep dive into that topic. It was really interesting because there's a lot of parallels to Bigfoot and other cryptids, but I think for the general population, it's a lot more easier or that's that's a bad way to put it. A lot easier to accept that mountain lions could be in the eastern part of the U.S. because they used to be here, but they were extirpated as you know America grew. Uh, they became a threat to livestock. They were killed off in a lot of areas. They were simply pushed out. The habitat was logged out as it was here in New England. So they, so, you know, they they went to different areas or they simply died out. And uh, now there's an idea that maybe Western cats are just moving eastward. There, there's nothing stopping them. I mean, they, don't, they don't recognize the borders between Canada and the U.S. or New York or Vermont or anything. They'll just move to where the habitat is. And now the eastern U.S., New England, Maine, uh, New Hampshire and Maine, two of the most forested states in the country. You've got the Adirondacks, upstate New York, even Massachusetts, Vermont, tons of woods, tons of deer, tons of habitat. The moose have moved back in a certain area. So why wouldn't other animals? So I know for some people it's, oh, that's not really a cryptid, but it's technically it's an out of place animal. And you wouldn't believe the parallels with the kind of the allegations of the government cover up stuff with mountain lions. And, you know, you can imagine something like that with Bigfoot or another topic, as we see with the UFO kind of thing that's going on with the government. It's very weird with the mountain lion stuff because it's state and local officials, usually federal government sometimes, but it's a very, very interesting topic. So that's a, that's one I've done. And I've done some stuff on um, UFOs a little bit, kind of by my experiences. I, I'm not really into the whole UFO topic, but I've seen a few things. So with Small Town Monsters, we've done on the trail of UFOs, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's mostly been Bigfoot at this point. I've been doing Bigfoot stuff previously to I stuff with Small Town Monsters as well. Just sort of wanted to look into the topic and got hooked. I just have two things real quick. One, don't downplay on the trail of UFOs. Great documentary, by the way. Loved it. And with the whole big cat thing, um, two years ago, right out on a ridge down, I don't know, maybe not even 10 miles from my house, um, a big cat was spotted 
and um, it actually killed a farmer's horse. Hmm. And the fishing game are like, oh, th that that's impossible. We have bobcats. We don't have mountain lion. Da 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 da. And then you look a little bit west of where I am. You have a damn college called Penn State University, the Nittany Lions in the Nittany Mountains. They've been here, and like you said, they don't know borders. Okay, they got pushed out. They're going to come back. This, you know, it, it sucks that that one traveled so far and got hit by a car, but. You know, you're saying moose are coming back. I, I do not doubt big cats such as mountain lions are, they're here. They, I don't think they ever fully left, but it, it's no different than them. Re now, it, the government reintroduced the wolves in, into Yellowstone, but, you know, hey, these mountain lions, they're just going where, where the food is. They're just reintroducing themselves without government help. It's usually the young males that sort of move out and they leave the family, they get kicked out, right? They're supposed to go and make their own sort of family and they just wander. And I mean, I guess they can wander for thousands of miles. But one of the more startling incidents, I guess, in my documentary that I featured was of a, a couple in, in Massachusetts, rural Massachusetts, central Massachusetts, near the Quabbin Reservoir, which is a huge area with a ton of wildlife uh, and allegedly Bigfoot sightings as well. But most of it's under lock and key, actually. Uh, and something had attacked one of their horses in, I believe it was 2016, and they weren't sure what it was. So they called out the Department of uh, Environmental Protection. I think it is in Massachusetts. Every state has a different, some states have fish and game, fish and wildlife, whatever. There's a lot of different, the Massachusetts Environmental Police basically came out there and assessed it and said, well, you know, we don't believe it was an animal attack. Actually, we think it was owner negligence that led to the this, this horse getting hurt. And they actually, you know, they thought maybe it was a bear, coyote, something like that. They, they, the mountain lion was the last thing they ever thought. That really ticked them off. I mean, horse people, they, they take care of their animals for the most part. These people, I, I can say, having been there, their facility was, was impressive. I mean, they treat those horses like kids practically, you know, mm -hmm. very, very uh, well, well kept animals. And so they had essentially the owners decided, okay, well, we're going to scour the entire property and find, you know, any kind of evidence of something that may have been there. And I'm glad they did because they started looking at the fence post and there was some sort of an altercation where essentially one of the horses had a huge gash and it looked like a cut in the side kind of near its neck area. And the photos are in my documentary, Lines of the East, for photo, and, and as well as the interview with this, this woman. Um, and there was a latch of a gate that had been broken and was you know, 25 feet from where it was supposed to be. And along a, a fence post, they found scratches as well as short blonde looking hairs that were sort of embedded in the fence as well as a trail of blood going along the bottom level of this kind of two-tiered uh, fence you know it was just one beam second beam on the bottom which would have been very low for a horse leading off and they had collected those samples and it had hairs that had follicles as well as cutting off the entire chunks of the wood with the blood on it they sent it to the university of florida a well-respected lab. I mean, and these lab tests are not cheap, by the way. Getting DNA tested is is a very, it's a pretty hefty kind of thing. So they had tested it with a very reputable lab at the University of Florida. Results came back from two different samples, again, with follicles and blood, male mountain lion, puma concolor male. So then the family goes to the state of Massachusetts with their finding and says it was not owner negligence. We believe it was a mountain lion. The state says, okay, you know, we don't necessarily agree with this analysis, Let's find a, a lab that we both agree on to, to retest the samples. So they say, okay, let's go to the University of Arizona. They have a well-respected lab out there. 
They get the samples tested, same thing, male mountain lion. And then apparently the state stopped answering phone calls and basically pretended this family didn't exist anymore. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. If you think about it, I, I kind of understand I, And I've talked to folks, I interviewed game wardens and other people in both uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, other States, Massachusetts, people that were either former or current fish and wildlife biologists, that sort of thing. And they said, you know, mostly it's money. It's kind of the issue. We can't just say that there's mountain lions everywhere because then people it'll cause a hysteria but it just it breeds distrust with the public. So that's just a, I just want to share that story from Lions of the East. I thought that was a really interesting one. Um, it kind of reminds me of like uh, the thylacine that once something is like extinct, it kind of like forfeits the rights to it. And of course, just like uh, the mountain lions and with the thylacine, they had issues with it taking off livestock or taking out livestock. So yeah. I think that it's part of the cover up primarily is the fact that they don't want that species in that area because it causes a problem. So if they recognize that it's there and it's extinct, then all of a sudden it's going to get all the rights back and they can't touch it. Like they just have to leave it alone where if they kind of ignore the fact that it exists and they just kind of kill them off as they pop up, then they can kind of get rid of the problem without like having to like fully recognize the problem. And I think that's kind of where it sits for both, honestly. Could be. I mean, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of stories. I've heard people saying, oh, I know that they reintroduced the mountain lions into New York because they wanted to manage the deer population. There's a lot of wild stories that come out, but there's, there's an interesting amount of parallels between even the Bigfoot topic and the way people, you know, look at alleged evidence online. I've seen a lot of issues with that in both topics. So there's parallels, but like I said, I think overall with that topic, because it's a bit of a bridge between cryptozoology and mainstream zoology whereas a lot of people can accept that mountain lions returning eastward in the area they used to live that makes sense mountain lions we know they exist right they're a real animal unlike bigfoot so you, you have to really be kind of convinced that bigfoot's real or had an experience so it's just that topic is interesting because it appeals i think more broadly to folks that aren't into cryptozoology whereas also a lot of people that are into cryptozoology can easily latch onto a topic like that you know mystery big cats alien big cats as it's called then you got the Black Panther element, and that's probably a story for another day. But that is a, a that definitely a part of it too. <laughs> you know, they they talk about the the Black Panther even being over uh, uh, England and and what yeah. have you. So where they it, wouldn't that, have that's a crazy like fun. That, yeah, yeah. And uh, let's move on to some more of your your other documentaries, and then hopefully we can get into some Sasquatch talk. Yeah, absolutely. I w might as well just hop right into it because most of the other right. most of the work I've done has been Sasquatch related, aside from what I just mentioned. So, so I guess a good spot to start with that because it's a pretty vast topic, and like you said, you have a lot of documentaries on it. Um, rather than being like, "Oh, what was your first Bigfoot documentary?" Um, let's talk about like what you'd wrecked or what you would say are like your your biggest, most popular uh, Bigfoot documentaries that you've done. Starting with like, I guess, personal favorite, if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I think we've got almost up to 24 separate documentaries at this point on the specific Bigfoot Beyond the Trail YouTube series. So that people can go check that out on the Small Town Monsters channel. And that has, I mean, we've been all over the country to different areas. Uh, probably the most popular one is the one that recently came out, the Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch, which deals with a uh, one of my personal favorite stories and my personal favorite investigations we've ever been on where I'd come into contact with a gentleman in 2021, but April, May of 2021, who had this remote property in the, on the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska 
It was over an hour boat ride from the nearest town, just a cabin in the middle of nowhere. You've got glaciers and mountains and black bears and, and brown bear and moose, everything out there, humpback whales in the bays. I mean, the most incredible location you can imagine. And we actually ended up going out there for to spend eight days in uh, just this past May, so May of 2022. And we went out there and the stories of what, what was going on in this cabin that he'd been talking about and and folks that he had brought out there in, in the building of this cabin, I mean, they'd, they'd see gigantic rocks thrown into the water, things thrown into their boat that would be moored out in the bay, uh, wood knocks, uh, the audio, screams, uh, very weird sort of stuff. Uh, so the story captivated me. So that is in the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch. It's a two-part documentary series. Each one, each episode is like an hour and a half long because we were really out there for so long. And that's probably one of my personal favorites. And that is one of our more popular, I guess, episodes as well. But um, there's a ton of other ones. I and mean, we've been to Bluff Creek. We've been to Oregon, the Colorado Rockies, done stuff in New Hampshire, West Virginia, Florida. I'm just going, actually going back to Florida in a couple of weeks to look for the skunk ape again. Uh, so we've been all over the place. So it's tough to pick favorites, but I'd say the Alaska one definitely stands out in terms of scenery and, and the kind of interesting stuff that uh, has happened out there. Who joined you on the Alaska one? Because that one, I think I might have seen that. Was was Larry um, Baxter with you on that one? So he or was, am I thinking of it? Yeah, Larry Beans Baxter was, he was in, he wasn't there while we were out there, but he actually joined us towards, or, or joined, he was in the documentary, I should say, but he went on a separate trip after we had left to, we found this weird looking handprint, greasy, oily handprint on the back of the cabin. Yes. And uh, we didn't have the right equipment to document that while we were there. It was just total random discovery one day. And so Larry actually was taken out there by the property owner a couple of weeks after that. And he lifted the sample as a law enforcement background. So he took um, some swabs from each of the fingers and kind of put that in tubes and then actually did it like police would do and try to lift the sample using uh, adhesives and, and trying to lift it that way. So he made a cameo for about, think four or five minutes in, in the end of our part two of our documentary but um okay. we were out there with just myself and my crew and uh rob roy menzies who actually owns the bigfoot art gallery in a in palmer alaska he was out there he spent a lot of time at that cabin and had a lot of different things happen at that property so he was kind of informal guide in a way when we were out there yeah, I like I said, I, I've seen so many different documentaries and, and especially some of yours that, you know, even when we were talking before, you know, airing, you know, getting you and and someone else uh, mixed up uh, is very easy to do because th there's I don't want to say there's a lot, but th there's a lot of documentaries, but there's not a lot of quality documentaries that like you guys put together. Um, <clears throat> I know um, are. Are you familiar with uh, Edward Mong and, and any of his work? Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, somewhat. So he now he was um, out in the Dubois area at, at one point. I think he might have moved because he's doing I think he does a lot of work with uh, Tony Merkel now um, mm. with the, his documentaries and what, you know, finding you know, on the search for that uh, for Dogman doc, uh, series right. that he did and what have you. But uh, it, it, it's hard to find good quality you know, just independent people that don't put the big Hollywood production behind it. And that's what always drew me into small town monsters and, um, you know, a couple others that, you know, you go on Amazon, you just type in Bigfoot or Sasquatch and, and, and 
you get sucked in and you're just like, wow, this is the type of stuff that I like to watch because it's real people, not with a Hollywood production going and talking to real people. And, you know, you do different experiments and what have you. And, you know, when you were saying about the Alaskan thing, I, I just remember, you know, certain parts of it and it, it, you, you guys did a great job and, you know, to go in an area, a, you're looking for Sasquatch. B, you got you got killer brown bear around you. You got killer moose. <laughs> Most people don't think moose are mean, but mo- moose will kill you. Oh, um, yeah, I live in moose country. There, no joke. Yeah, and it, it's like wow, you know, uh, it, it does take some guts to do this. I mean, granted, you're you grew up in the outdoors. I did as well. Um, but there are times you get out there and you're just like, mm, I think I'm going to back out on this one. You know there, what I mean? Yeah, just certainly. get that one feeling. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, with some of my hiking and backpacking kind of background is they always say the mountains will be there another day. Uh, if, if it gets too risky, don't push it, get out. I mean, you, know, you run into animals, you run into weird people. We've had strange people we've come across in the woods, which is honestly to me even more frightening than maybe running into some animal because animals are predictable for the most part, uh, you know, unless there's something maybe terminally wrong with them. But uh, people are unpredictable. So that, that's a factor, you know. But some of these areas we go into, we really try to go to some of the most remote and uh, interesting spots in North America. I mean, even, even the lower 48, Alaska side, that's probably the most remote location we've been. Because in a lot of these places we go to, even in Utah or Colorado, we're backpacking into six, seven miles into 10,000-foot mountains, 10,000-foot plus, you know, where you're just basically starting your hike you're still you're parking your car you're hiking out you still you kind of have that false sense of security whereas in a place like this this area a in alaska you have to take over an hour boat ride just to get there so it's you have that real distance and you know if something were to happen out there even just a, a sprained ankle or some kind of injury anywhere can be catastrophic let alone in an area where you're so remote and so far off the grid you only have satellite connection not that we have a phone connection most places we go to um, but, you know, places like in Florida, you can be in the middle of nowhere wilderness and you'll actually still get a cell phone signal, which is crazy. But because it's just flat, there's no mountains breaking right. the signal, which has been really kind of weird in certain times. But that part, it's part of the thrill for me is getting out there and you experience some of the local wildlife. I mean, as I'm talking about going in a few weeks here to the Florida Everglades area again, looking for Skunk Cape last year on our, on our trek down there, we'd come across Florida panther tracks which were amazing in a track line. And that for me was a huge deal because of my interest, obviously in the mystery big cat topic uh, and the Florida Panther being a kind of basically a mountain lion species, not even really a subspecies, just normal mountain lions that have adapted to live in the swamps of Florida and how endangered they are. And most people go in Florida and never even see one living there, let alone us first time in there finding tracks of them which is really interesting. So just encountering that kind of stuff, seeing some of the natural beauty for us is a big deal. We really try to bring people along for the journey. People tell us a lot, uh, you know, between the drone stuff and the, some of the cinematography, we really try to capture the moment that we're in. Uh, and, and again, part of it is, or, or I, I should have mentioned this before, is just really trying to absolutely keep it hundred percent real. That is what we do. We don't, we're not out there with a camera crew of 10 people stomping around with lights. I mean, we've got, usually it's just a few of us, maybe four or five, like seven or eight people is a lot for us. And that's like your average film crew out in the woods, TV production or whatever. That's, 
that's like a skeleton crew, seven or eight people. You get 15, 20, that's where you're talking. So a lot of these kind of reality shows that go out there, they're, you know, they're going to scare everything off. But we really try to, we're basically just, a lot of times we're just going in backpacking in as if you would go on a normal trip. If you weren't filming it, you just go on a trip. This is us just documenting that journey and attempting to document any kind of evidence of anything Sasquatch. Like if we don't experience anything, we're going to tell you that we're going to be like, Hey, this is what happened. We encounter all this other wildlife. We're not going to add in any fake sounds or anything to kind of make it seem more exciting. Um, and that, because that's what they do on TV. You know, they don't, they don't tell the truth for us. It's absolutely important to talk about the truth of this topic. And I think there's a lot of exaggeration online and just in other content about it. So I'm not tooting our own horn at all. I'm just saying, I don't see why it's so hard to just keep it real. You know, you're going out into some of these beautiful locations anyway, might as well just document it. Hey, if we experience something, we will put it in there. We'll say, I don't know what it was. I mean, we saw this or we, heard this could it be sasquatch i don't know we tell people just you know make up your own minds don't trust us don't take our word for it do your own research and if you think you know what we encountered let us know be happy to kind of discuss it. i think the transparency is is pretty key with the kind of stuff that we do so um yeah we just like to keep it real that's basically with bigfoot beyond the trail you know it's more of a kind of boots on the ground survivor man-esque kind of series whereas small time monsters a lot of the other films are uh, more driven, you know, interview driven. So they'll interview 15, 20 people, a documentary talking about a certain cryptid or, or Sasquatch. So it's a little bit different. They kind of coexist in the same world, but uh, some people don't like the boots on the ground stuff. They're like, Oh, we don't like seeing you guys cooking out in the woods. Some people are like, we love that. That's part of the experience. So some people might gravitate more towards the stuff. That's a little bit more talking heads and interviews. We, 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 mesh with that a little bit we do a little bit of everything kind of but it's primarily kind of an adventure-based uh research series if i had to kind of describe what bigfoot beyond the trail was i like and have have you thought about or maybe even reached out to to less to maybe team up and do something because he's had some rather peculiar encounters that he he himself you know can't wrap his head around he can't say definitively what it is but you know, in the back of his mind, he's like, that could be Sasquatch. You know what I mean? And his style of filming was so, I guess, state of the art. You know what I mean? On, on how he did it. And, and yes. And uh, I always loved that about Sur Survivor Man. And when, excuse me, other shows kind of bring that in. Okay, hey, I'm going camping. We're setting up gear. You know, we're sitting around cooking dinner, you know, whatever. To me, that is, that is reality. It's not yeah. this, oh, you gotta gotta put on your infrared, and you gotta whisper, and then we're gonna play this music, or we're gonna knock on on. <laughs> it's like, come on, you know, take the Hollywood stuff out of it and get yeah. real. And Overly dramatized. I, I keep driving yeah. it back to that, but that that's what makes your your documentaries and others like you great. I appreciate it, and yeah, Les Stroud has been a big inspiration to me over the years. I mean, I grew up watching uh, Survivor Man. This was well before he ever got into the Bigfoot stuff, so I've always enjoyed that style and having done some uh, naturalism and kind of survival training. Um, I, of course, I love the show like Survivor Man because it, it, that kind of was a big inspiration and definitely some of my style with filmmaking for sure. I mean, Les pioneered some of that stuff. So I know now I'd love to pick his brain about a little bit of the Bigfoot stuff. I know he's a little bit, he, he's been with some controversial figures in the Bigfoot world, you know, out, out in the woods with them. And he has maybe a little bit more paranormal views um, than I do per se, but I would still like to pick his brain on it. I think it'd be interesting, but 
relating that to the actual place we went to in Alaska was where he had had his famous encounter of this sort of creature beating his chest, sounding like a gorilla-like noise, you know, hooting like an ape. This is something that he described well before he did his Survivor Man Bigfoot show. Um, and this mm -hmm. was like season two. And the property owner of the place we were in in Alaska had actually contracted a guy to bring out some of the lumber. I mean, it was a bit, he needed a bigger boat essentially to bring out a lot of that lumber and the construction materials to build the cabin. You know, just a small 10 person boat, you're not going to be able to take that quantity out. So we contracted a guy. This is actually the guy who originally had taken him kind of around to see the property. And essentially, after they'd experienced stuff out there, they the first time out there clearing logs and trees, they had rocks and things thrown at them and, and heard what sounded like a T Rex roaring and talking to this boat captain. He'd said, Well, hey, you know what? You know, what, what's going on here? And he said, Well, you probably experienced some Sasquatch related stuff. And he's like, Come on. What, what are you joking around that this was the property owner talking to this boat captain? He said, well, yeah, so you know Les Stroud, right? Yeah, everyone knows Les Stroud. Well, I was actually, this is me speaking as the boat captain. I was contracted by Les, Les's production company to bring him out to that area. You know, they film him, they drop him off in a kayak, they watch him go, and then I take the crew back to town and Les does his thing for however long he's out there. So then they come to pick him up a few days later. They say, you look like crap, hadn't slept. You know, not like he usually looks glamorous coming out of surviving in the woods, but he just looked disheveled and he immediately started talking about what's the possibility of Sasquatch existing. And you know, he talked about this thing that he experienced with this hooting in middle of nowhere, Alaska. I mean, very interesting. So that story was related to me. That was the same general region. I, was, I don't exactly know where in relation to where this cabin was. It was the same general region. Kenai Peninsula has dozens of bays and inlets that cut into it. Could have been any one of those, but any one of those could be potential viable habitat. They are for black bear, uh, moose, brown bear, uh, lynx. We found evidence of all kinds of creatures. We had humpback whales coming out of the water. We had orcas. So um, that was that was very fascinating to hear that. And I actually went back and rewatched that season two episode of Survivor Man, and I see the name of the boat as he's getting dropped off. And I look into my buddy, the property owner's photos of when they were getting the lumber dropped off and the same exact boat. So that story was kind of an interesting sort of confirmation for me that uh, so there are kind of another Les Stroud connection with that particular area. So I'd love to talk to Les simply about that just to say, hey, you know, where were you? Because this this has been going on at this property out there. Uh, not to sidebar too much, but I'm definitely curious. Um, you yourself, uh, what do you think is the most influential piece of Bigfoot evidence that you've personally experienced? That I personally experienced? Ooh, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd call it influential, but a lot of the stuff I've experienced, I can't say is 100% Sasquatch related. Um, I can only say that it possibly fits the pattern of behaviors that have been reported with Sasquatch. So stuff like wood knocking, the rock throwing, that sort of thing. I mean, there's not a lot of things that can throw rocks in the woods in North America. And I've heard that uh, and physically seen things kind of being thrown towards my tent at one point in the mountains of Vermont a couple of years ago um, and hearing wood knocks and that sort of thing. But I guess so it's, it's more behavior. Again, I can't say it's 100% Sasquatch, but we've heard this strange whoop in Bluff Creek, actually, that very interesting the way it happened and nobody else in camp kind of heard it. And I was one of the only ones that heard it. And it was it was a night where we had some very interesting occurrences with a dog in camp that was acting very strangely, very uncomfortable, tail between his legs. And it was virtually 
couple hundred feet down from where the original Bigfoot footprints were found in the late 50s uh, that, that coined the term Bigfoot, where these logging crews had discovered tracks and that were cast and a journalist had coined Bigfoot, where that name comes from. Um, previous to that, it was Sasquatch, Abominable Snowman, but it was in that same location. That was really interesting. So this is, this is a long-winded answer for a simple question. I would say, personally, just some of the, some of the sounds and stuff I've heard, if I can say they're Sasquatch, which I can't, that would be for if it was, you know, stuff I personally experienced. I've never seen anything I can say as Sasquatch, but um, there's times where we've just had multiple weird things happen at once where it's just hard to explain otherwise. I mean, the, I've had plenty of encounters with other weird animals or other animals that are weird kind of encounters, but you, you end up seeing what it is or you're able to identify what made that sound. Or you see, okay, there's the moose going there. Or, oh, you see it was a bear. Or you hear it was a bear around the audio recorder. But there are other times where, you know, you hear wood knocks and what sounds like something throwing rocks, hitting other rocks, splashing into the water, kind of leave you wondering what that could be. And you, it's very frustrating as you're scanning with a thermal camera and you can't see anything. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, something like that. I mean, there's, there's other things I've experienced too, just more sort of a smaller scale stuff. I mean, the handprint we found in Alaska on the side of the cabin was interesting because it's a 50, 50 thing where, I mean, it's not going to be a moose or a bear that made something that is and a handprint that has dramatic glyphics, which is only present in primates. So it's either 50% a human being, one of the guys, in the cabin or somebody that happened to have a very greasy big hand that stuck it on the side of the cabin, or it's something human like or ape like pretty clean cut to me. And I, you know, I'm not going to say it's one way or the other because uh, we haven't really determined so, but some folks we've talked to said, Oh, that looks, that doesn't look human. Some said, yeah, it looks human. So it's a 50, 50 thing. It's not just like an impression you find in the dirt. That's very undefined that that could have been a bear double stepping or a moose running and creating a larger impression. It's not a perfect clean sort of footprint. So a lot of times I think people interpret evidence they see as being Bigfoot because it's sort of wishful thinking or they're not deducing and taking out the other candidates first. You should always kind of look at Bigfoot as the last possibility unless you see one literally standing in front of you. But even then, if I were to see that, I'd probably be skeptical of it and try to debunk it myself and try to t try not to convince myself I'm crazy. You know, the, the guys looking for Bigfoot, seeing a Bigfoot, that's going to be, you know, you're going to have to be under some scrutiny for that. And I absolutely would welcome that, you know, have somebody kind of grill me on it just to make sure I actually saw what I saw and not just some, you know, be projecting wishful thinking after searching for something so long that you kind of get frustrated. I've heard that with other folks. So um, just kind of, yeah, that's a very long winded answer to a rather simple question, I suppose. Was the handprint to like from the tip of the middle finger down to the bottom of the palm? Yeah, it was only about eight and a half to nine inches kind of total, which is not. Okay. So, not so it could of, be a man's hand. Exactly. So it's not out of human range at all. I mean, it was just slightly larger than most of us there. We had about average sized hands. Uh, the weird thing was the lack of the thumb that was there. Um, and it's, it's in the documentary. We have the documentation of it. And um, we thought it was interesting because there's some theories that Sasquatches possibly leave a kind of oily uh, residue on their, <clears throat> on their hands, excuse me. Uh, which have been reported in other locations, people seeing, you know, greasy handprints on windows of cars or the sides of houses. And I, it was a totally random day. I was just going out, change a battery and an audio recorder behind the cabin. And I happened to be like, oh, let me check out the metal siding. And it was 
there's this weirdly positioned awkward thing it was like you know almost eye level off of the ground where it was set up and it was underneath this window of this bunk room where three of us had stayed and where they've had some previous kind of interesting incidents take place so we just kind of did our best to try to document it and then the sample was collected by larry beans baxter later on and we're still hoping to get it tested at some point but that stuff ain't cheap so uh, we'll <laughs> no. probably do it in like a batch with other folks that are testing stuff but we, we, whatever result it is i mean i've talked to jeff dr jeff meldrum he said he believed it's probably human talked to a primate dermatoglyphics expert who says you know it's definitely primate um but did believe it was also human so um yeah i mean it totally could be we're open to that result we're not you know a lot of times people get emotionally invested in their in their evidence so they can't you know, somebody challenges it or questions it, they get the, an the, the uh, answer is kind of angry. Oh, you know, you're just a skeptic or whatever. You don't believe me. It's not about that. It's about actually concretely coming to a uh, resolution. You know, I I'm totally open to people questioning or poking and prodding some of the alleged evidence or if we were to bring, get some footage or something like that. Absolutely. You got to have that scrutinized by a third party that's not invested in or that's not your friend that's too... Yeah, he doesn't want to be mean by saying, oh, I think you recorded a, a barred owl that you're thinking is a Sasquatch. No, you want somebody who's going to be able to tell you, no, I think it's this. Right. I think that's important I like, when it comes to evidence. I like that you still keep that skepticism because there's other shows out there that the moment they hear a sound or they see a, a certain print, it's, it's Sasquatch. Oh, my God. Look, it's butt prints. It's this Nothing or it's that. It and it's be. like, <laughs> it's like, oh, come on, guys. You know, the. You have to throw out all evidence on the table and analyze it because, like you said, at the end of the day, you want concrete proof if it is truly a Sasquatch or if it's human or something else. You know what I mean? And, you know, being out there, have you ever heard any like Sierra type sounds? Not anything Sierra sounds related. I mean, some of the audio recordings from Area A from the Alaska kind of saga, they were very reminiscent of that. Some people actually thought they might be Sierra, like the Sierra sounds, but um, they're, they're actually not. Just got some very interesting vocals. But personally, I've never heard anything like that. I've heard, you know, legend whoops and that sort of thing, possibly whistle sort of thing, but nothing spectacular you know like i said the whoop we heard in bluff creek was the strangest because it happened as we were being shown there was a ton of us in camp and we're in the middle of nowhere in northern california and we're being shown the site of where those original bigfoot prints were found in the late 50s that coined the term bigfoot and our friend ron who's actually in the alaska documentary his friend his, his dog bandit who's hiked the whole appalachian trail i mean this dog's been everywhere with ron very hardcore backpacker type and this dog uh, never needs to be leashed, very calm, very good, good natured dog. And his tail was flatly between his legs and he kept trying to duck in the side of the road. That's apparently what he does when he's really frightened. He would duck into the bushes. He kept trying to do that to the point where we had to take our friend's belt and make a makeshift leash to bring the dog back to camp. He was so unlike himself, a tail solidly between his legs. And other guys at the time were saying they were hearing what sound like knocks in the woods and other strange vocal, not vocals, but noises like things being thrown uh, while all of us were kind of congregated around the dog. And they're like, oh, we're hearing stuff back here. We get back to camp. I'm at the edge of camp and, and the dog is now okay. He's wagging his tail. I walk up to him and I just hear this whoop kind of noise from kind of the hill to the side. And I turn and I said, Oh, was that, 
you know, one of the guys in camp doing a whoop and people are like, I didn't hear anything. There's a guy, there's like three people standing 10 feet from me. They didn't hear it at all because they're blabbering as humans do. They literally missed the sound that I happened to hear. And I got it on film as I was checking on the dog and you can kind of see my reaction. That's, that's one of the more interesting ones I've heard. And we did some kind of analysis on it and it doesn't really fit the profile for owl or other animals typical to that area. And it was just weird because of the sequence of events, but yeah, I've never heard anything that sounded like the Sierra sounds just, uh, you know, the odd whoop and those kinds of things, uh, possibly whistle. And then a lot of the wood knock slash rock kind of throw stuff, that sort of thing. Have you heard any of the, uh, like mimic sounds yourself? Um, you know, where they they try to sound like people. Not that I'm aware of. No. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff, like I said, I've heard is primarily what I mentioned previously, but, uh, yeah, I've heard stories of the mimicking stuff. I've heard people saying it sounds almost like somebody speaking gibberish or like speaking, you know, kind of very, it's almost sounds like language, but not just very kind of, uh, kind of something weird mumbling Heard that sort of thing. But no, I've never heard that myself. When you, when you take an animal out, especially like a dog, uh, their instincts are going to be a little more in tune with nature than, than ours. Yeah. I know my wife and I, uh, a couple of years ago, were out hiking some trails here near where we live, and we came across uh, a rock cairn. Now, do I think it was man-made? Yeah, absolutely. However, my, at the time, it was my, our only dog. Um, he's a, a French Mastiff Rottweiler mix. Great dog. Doesn't Kind of the same thing. Doesn't need to be on a leash. You know, he'll run a little bit ahead. It always comes back, you know. Just a, a, a big baby, but, you know, if, if he needs to do damage, I, I, I think, I hope he will, you know what I mean, <laughs> in certain situations. But, uh, you know, he freaked out. His hair, hair all his hackles were up. And he, mm. and he was starting to drool. He was sniffing in the air. Didn't like it. We ended up walking up and around. And now, could, could this be what he was picking up on? All of a sudden, the bushes started rattling, and and I was carrying a sidearm at the time. My hand went to my sidearm, and all of a sudden, this big buck jumped out and, and took off. Now, could he have been smelling that? He could have. However, he's been around other situations even before that where he saw deer and, and didn't get the hair on his head, you know, hackles standing up because, right. you know, he would say, oh, that. that I'm going to go play with the deer and he'd go, you know, run after it. You know what I mean? And he obviously couldn't keep up with the deer, but you know, and he'd, he'd come back, but it was just a weird situation. Even my wife who doesn't really necessarily believe in Sasquatch even admitted something was off right there. It was just weird. And I, I at one time had a, uh, the video recording on my phone of how he was reacting and it, and it was just strange. And he, He's never done it since, and it was just that that one time, and it, it, it was it was a little bizarre. Yeah, it's interesting when animals react like that. Again, as you mentioned, they're going to be more kind of tuned. They have more senses, better whether it's better hearing or better smell, that sort of thing. So it, that was an interesting incident that happened to us at Bluff Creek for sure because of the added component of the dog. I mean, it was a weird one, and that's still one of my kind of favorite captures i guess that we've gotten that i happened to be filming when that happened uh, and then you know a few years prior to that in that same location my friend had coincidentally recorded some kind of a weird scream that he actually didn't even hear until days later when reviewing audio 
and his camera picked it up because it, he had backed away. And the thing about where that camp was is there was a creek kind of all around it. So you can't, if you're standing in the center of it, especially if you're around a campfire talking with people, you can't really hear much. You hear the babbling of the creek. A lot of people say it sounds like talking, the way water moves. But where I happened to be was far enough away from both the water and everybody else that I was actually able to hear sounds in the area. So, and that, that area, Laos Camp, Bluff Creek, there's a long history of sightings. James Bobo Fay had his sighting right, I mean, the same area we were basically in. There's been sightings going from the 50s when they first started logging that area, obviously, and then made famous by the 1967 Patterson Gimlet film. So the area is incredible for sure at Bluff Creek. Uh, not to sidebar too much from the Sasquatch conversation, but just because it got brought up in my mind because you guys were talking about dogs. Um, have you personally ever done any uh, research into dogmen or done any expeditions into dogmen? No, not personally. I'm not really that interested in that topic, so to speak. I've never really heard many sightings that I've received. I mean, I've heard some possible. I've heard one story from New Hampshire, a guy that said he saw what he thought was a Sasquatch, but the description of it was, it was a orange brownish kind of hair with almost like a snout like face, but charcoal black skin. It was scratching its back against a telephone pole. My first thought, my first thought was kind of bear, but he said, Oh no, it walked off on two legs and basically walked off like a Sasquatch. And you know, guy lived in the mountains. So had definitely been accustomed to seeing black bears in the area. And, you know, they do get, you can get cinnamon or lighter colored black bears even, but, uh, that's the only description I can really think of. And I, I know Seth and some of the rest of the small town monsters crew has done American werewolves, which deals with more of the eyewitness side of stories with dog, man. I mean, I don't know the idea of something like that being a biological ent entity that exists, you know, some kind of undiscovered canid bipedal species to me seems very unlikely. Uh, it seems to have more of a paranormal twist to it uh, for the most part. So I don't know. That's kind of, that's outside of my wheelhouse, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've never, if I run into stories about it, I'm sure it would be interesting, but never really run into that much that I would consider all that credible, um, aside from you know, like an eyewitness story or two that I've been told personally. Um, that again, you know, this guy was, he didn't even say dogman, he said he thought it was a Sasquatch. So I mean, I'm not saying it's a dogman, but uh, I have heard the stories of Bigfoot sightings where maybe it was more of a different shaped face maybe deformity subspecies. I don't really know. That's just a very kind of, it's a whole rabbit hole, but I know there's a lot of people that are getting into the dogman topic. I know it's pretty popular now, I think largely because of kind of, it became popular online, but there are some people that have been doing research into it well before it was really popular. And, uh, you know, it's stuff like Linda Godfrey and some of the other stuff down in Kentucky with the certain areas. So, but I don't know a whole lot about it aside from just kind of peripherally knowing people that look into it. We know dark, dark waters does a lot, a lot of stuff into, I don't know if you're familiar with, with his work or whatever with dog man, but I, I kind of tend to agree with you. My thing is, is when did we start calling it dog man and quit calling it a werewolf? You know what I mean? Cause it's like, that's, that's what it reminds me of. It's like, well, you're trying that... to blend something and create a new cryptid. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I will say then that that's not true that I haven't looked into a, I guess, a werewolf-like story because I did do a show back called Chasing Legends with some folks a couple of years ago where we went to Louisiana and looked for the Rougarou, which is a sort mm. of Cajun werewolf. So it's not really, it doesn't fit the more dogman and modern sightings 
aside from, I guess, physical description, it's a little bit more steeped in Cajun and Catholic folklore, which is really interesting to me in that whole region of Louisiana. There's a lot of mixture of cultures and voodoo and Catholicism and vampires and ghosts and, you know, this Cajun werewolf. And one of the kind of funny things that we tried out there was, um, and I, it was, it was almost like a ghost hunt. I'm not really into ghosts or anything, but there was the idea that the, the Ruguru couldn't count past 12. So you, you, you always carry more, you know, a bunch of pennies with you. And if, if you were to be chased by a Ruguru, you would throw these pennies down and it would be stuck trying to count it and it couldn't get past a certain number. So that's when you make your escape. That's sort of the folklore. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we talked to folks, Cajun folks down there and they said, well, you know, uh, you become the Ruguru. You know, if you have regrets or you have secrets that you're keeping, you actually manifest as the Ruguru. So it's much more traditional folklore, kind of werewolf European sort of stories than it would be the more modern American dogman sort of thing. Um, so that's really the only one I've, I've kind of looked into. But again, it was just us kind of crashing around the swamps in Louisiana. And and I, could, it, I, I would separate that almost from the dogman kind of modern iteration. It's it's it maybe is part of the same type of phenomenon. I don't know, but it was uh, it's definitely it's very unique. I don't want to just lump it in and say it's just a dogman when it's steeped in that really unique Cajun culture and that sort of part of South Louisiana. I mean, you don't really find that anywhere else. So it's the swamp werewolf, basically, which is I think pretty cool concept. It could be yes, we have someone in the chat that that said, okay, when are they going to start calling Bigfoot Gorilla Man then? You know what I mean? And, and, and I was like, yeah, good point. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, no, You're like, I, I don't know. It, dog man's a touchy one. Uh, yeah. You got firm believers and you got firm skeptics. And there's a few of us that are like in the middle that can see kind of both sides. But eh, right. um, I don't know. I don't know where I stand on it personally. I mean, I, I think I'm at the point where and I've talked to folks that are really heavily into it. And they say, you know, most of the stuff, unfortunately, is probably B.S., and it's, it's conjecture and it's kind of, well, not like it's not a Bigfoot either. I got to say there's a lot of parallels, but a lot of the stuff in Dogman is very, you know, it's kind of like with the rise of Slenderman and other, you know, these uh, creepypasta things online that somehow get lumped into cryptids. But also then once they've had a presence online, become culturally present to the point where people are saying they're seeing these things, uh, which, you know, maybe 10 years ago, no one had even heard of it, whereas Dogman, it feels the same way. 20, 30 years ago, no one, if you talk to some of the old timers in the Bigfoot, nobody ever heard of Dogman. If anything, even the Linda Godfrey stuff with the Beast of Bray Road had just kind of, she had just started looking into it, but, you know, people had heard of, you know, there was the, the Ruguru and there was the Loop Guru and the Beast of Jevadon and the classic werewolf stories. There wasn't this kind of thing that there is now where people talk about Dogman as much. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, like I said, I, I, I know people that really are into it and they say there's some absolutely credible witnesses that don't want anything to do with the topic because of how toxic it is online and they just kind of keep to themselves. And that's interesting to me because I know plenty of people that are credible witnesses of Sasquatch that don't want anything to, they don't want to publicize their story. They'll tell you once they trust you, but they don't want to be associated with the topic, whether or not it's because of fear of ridicule societally or because of, you know, just the state of the online kind of, Bigfoot topic is a is pretty much a crapshoot for the most part. So uh, that's interesting, you know. But there's a lot of parallels that maybe perhaps between some of the stuff with Bigfoot and Dogman. But uh, overall, not really something that's on my radar. If I'm out in the woods and we happen to run into someone who claims to have seen one, I guess it will be on my radar. But uh, we usually kind of stick to uh, stick to our guns. But we definitely take anything that comes at us and 
try and look at that as well because you, you never know what will happen when you're out there in the field. I mean, you talk to different witnesses and they may lead you down a different path than you originally were intended on just based on a story. So uh, I'll let you guys know if I, if I do encounter anything like that. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say, I wonder if it's also partly like a blending of things in the aspect of you have the werewolf tales and people turning into dog-like creatures. So you have that aspect. And then on the other side, um, just like, you know, Sasquatch, there's multiple variations. There's like the skunk ape variation. Um, you know, th- it could be some type of subcategory of Sasquatch. And just because of the fact that maybe the face is shaped a little bit different, um, rather than us grouping it in with Sasquatch like we would with like skunk ape and everything else, um, people started relating it with the lore. So maybe there is one side of it that is true. I mean, if you get into like the woo stuff, maybe like the people turning into dogmen aspect of it is probable. I mean, especially if you dig into like skinwalkers, Wendigo, like different right. concepts going into that, but then flip it onto the other side. And uh, at least for somebody like yourself, um, it may be more probable to think about it as either like a cousin of a Sasquatch or again, just a different like race. If you want to use that word of, of Sasquatch. Yeah, that's interesting. I've heard that kind of mentioned before, people saying, well, it's just a baboon-like Sasquatch. I've definitely heard that before. And again, you know, the guy I know who reported his sighting to me said it seemed like baboon-like, you know, kind of elongated face. There may be some variation. I mean, I, w- I would imagine if you're if Sasquatch is some kind of biological entity and it follows sort of the norms for other species of apes. I mean, you have like different gorillas. I'm not saying it's like identical to a gorilla, but you have mountain gorillas that are slightly different than lowland gorillas. They, they based on habitat. Skunk ape sort of sightings tend to be a little bit smaller, leaner than stuff you might see in the Appalachians or up in the Pacific Northwest. In Alaska, there's reports of huge, you know, much bulkier Sasquatch. Again, hard, harsher terrain to live in, a lot harder to exist. And it, as opposed to an area that's pretty consistent year round or like the temperate rainforest, of the Pacific Northwest that are pretty conducive. I tend to think though, the idea that there's like a separate you know, multiple, once you get into that, I think it gets a little bit convoluted. I personally think that whatever Sasquatch is, it's one species throughout the continent. I mean, there may be some variations in other parts of the world. You have reports in Russia and China and parts of Asia, and then the Yowie in Australia, that sort of thing. And, and that would make sense. I mean, there's animal, like you have African elephants and Asian elephants. They developed separately in different areas. But um, I, th- I tend to think it's Sasquatch researchers that are very much on the flesh and blood side that are trying to kind of justify dogman, perhaps by saying, oh, it's just a Sasquatch subspecies. And I think even for some of the witnesses, they tend to say, well, they didn't see a dogman. They saw a Bigfoot and they were just misidentifying it. I feel like that's a little bit of a cop out because the stories that I've heard, at least about Dogman, it definitely seems to be pretty different from Sasquatch. Um, other encounters, like a lot of the interviews that Seth conducted in American Werewolves, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to say that that was identical to a Sasquatch. I mean, describing a bushy tail, you know, kind of very wolf-like, uh, very mean, you know, kind of mean energy associated with some of these sightings. So I think I think it's got to be its own thing if it is something. But it, again, it seems so more steeped in the supernatural, paranormal kind of side of things. But um, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's interesting to think about that. With, it, with Sasquatch, do I think there may be some kind of variations? Like I said, I think regionally for sure. Um, but having a snout, I think would be really, I, I don't know, giant baboon kind of thing. 
I, I suppose it's possible. I don't know. Deform, like I said earlier, I think with deformations and that sort of thing, just trying to kind of make sense of it, where it would fit. Um, I think it's a lot easier to say it's some kind of paranormal thing than, than trying to get it to fit in kind of in biology. I think that, that that's a bit of a, a tough one. Just a, just an idea to entertain possibly. Um, I almost wonder if it could possibly be some form of like, uh, like interbreeding species, like, I don't know if it would theoretically work because, I mean, we don't have physical proof of a Sasquatch right. that we could say, hey, it is able to breed with this animal or it's not able to breed with this animal. But, I mean, if you can put a, a you know, a, a horse and a donkey together and make a mule, I mean, who's to say along the line somewhere, theoretically, somebody didn't take, like, a bear and a Sasquatch and maybe they produced a baby and then that's where they get more of, like, the snout look. And also that being considered, too, um, I feel like a lot of the dogmen encounters in particular, um, a lot of them are probably uh, misidentified bears, um, especially considering yeah. the snout, and then they'll get up on two legs, and then they'll take off on four. Um, it's very wolf-like, but again, it's also very bear-like that they're trying to stand up, scare you off, and then they'll go on all fours to take off. So, Yeah, that, that makes more sense to me than people saying every Sasquatch sighting is a misidentified bear or something like that. That's... That's a bit of a stretch, but I could see, especially in some areas, I know of certain parts of like Kentucky and other areas where, I mean, I was recently down there doing some Sasquatch stuff and they said that, you know, seeing a bear around here is extremely rare. And I'm like, really? That's surprising. A lot of woods, a lot of deer. You'd think they said, yeah, I mean, people see bear on here. It's almost like seeing a Sasquatch almost. So I can only imagine people that maybe live in an area that hasn't had a lot of bear activity that might see it in a certain light and think, oh my God, what is this thing? You know, if, if bear is not the first thing they think of, that's interesting. But as for the, the species kind of thing, I don't, I mean, personally, I think even like if you look at chimps and, and gorillas and humans, I mean, there's no procreation that can happen despite how close genetically we are. I mean, we're like 98, 99% similarity with chimps, yet there's no viable offspring that can come out of that union. I mean, I think even Stalin tried to create super ape warrior men by breeding humans and chimps, which is just super creepy and dystopian, but, you know, fits the bill for somebody like Stalin. Uh, but, uh, you know, no avail, whatever Sasquatch is, in my opinion, it probably is something more human like some kind of hominid hominin, something along those lines where it's, it's not maybe in the homo genus, but somewhere along there. I don't know. I mean, there's so much we don't know about that history of, human origins. I mean, there's a lot of question marks, a lot of new things they're discovering all the time. I mean, they've discovered things like the Homo floresiensis, kind of described as a hobbit in Indonesia. And lo and behold, Sumatra to this day has sightings of the Orang Pendek, which is described as a small, hairy person that almost fits perfectly with the stories of the Homo floresiensis. You know, maybe they were isolated to an island, but, you know, why wouldn't these creatures maybe be on the mainland? They're still around to this day. So, uh, very, very kind of um, gets the mind working uh, when you start kind of thinking about that sort of stuff. Uh, just an idea to entertain too. Um, it could, it wouldn't be necessarily as fast as like a pig to a hog, but it almost makes me wonder too if there was at one point like it's just a, two groups of people, for example, and one of them decided to live in a community and be more civilized and the other side decided to go off into the woods and do their own thing. And then over years and years and years of evolution, uh, they kind of just adapted into their own race or being. 
So, I mean, mm. just an idea. Maybe we're looking at Bigfoot like it's uh, totally like a different creature other than humans, but maybe it's, again, like another race of humans. And maybe, um, of course, there's like an intelligence factor to Sasquatch, but if you're living in the woods and you're looking at things from a more natural point, um, maybe there wouldn't be as much of a reason for your brain to develop as far as like technologically speaking. You're more like woods based on the way that you view things. And again, too, going back into evolution, um, in order to survive in the woods with bears, things like that, when you don't have weapons and you're not adapting to use tools such as that, um, maybe you'd start getting bigger. And, uh, I mean, just, just a possible explanation of, of Sasquatch is that rather than looking at it, like it's like a missing link or something, maybe it's like, there was like a, a splitting point and everybody deterred off from there. And they're only related by that point. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that uh, theory as well. I mean, it was kind of actually funny that was in the X Files too. They had an episode about the Jersey Devil, and it turned out to be feral humans. You know, and there was some mention of Sasquatch in that. I thought it was funny how they tried to put that in the Jersey Devil kind of slot, though. I, think Rem- they should. I remember that episode. Yeah, it was. I think it was like a first season. I was one of the first yeah. episodes. That was classic. I remember watching that, and they had like a Patty of Patterson Gilman sketch in there too, but. I mean, I don't know. It just seems like what the, the, at least from what we know from anecdote, which is largely anecdotal evidence and recordings and that sort of thing, the behaviors, speculated behaviors of Sasquatch. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of tool use. I mean, aside from rudimentary stuff, like I'm wood knocking, report, seeing wood being bashed. I mean, we know chimps and other apes that they will use tools in certain moments, but they don't have like a designated tool for certain things they carry around, you know, like we as humans, you know, we have so many, we've just developed so many different tools and things that we use day to day that enhance our lives. Whereas for other species of apes, it seems to be more opportunistic tool usage, um, which doesn't mean they're, they're dumb. I mean, they're actually cognitively in some aspects more intelligent than we are. They're better at pattern recognition. They've done testing between humans and uh, chimps where chimps are able to outsmart humans in terms of remembering certain patterns. Um, you know, they don't have a lot, they don't have to do all this other stuff that we as humans do. So they're maybe a little more clarity than we might, uh, you know, a lot, we get inundated with stuff we have to do in our human kind of lives. And it's like the memes of a uh, you know, monkey in the zoo. It's like, you have, you know, you, you're, you're stuck in a cage. Well, you have to work and you have to pay taxes. Who's the real sucker, you know? Um, don't so, even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we are the real suckers, but there's a sort of a, uh, just cognitive difference, I think, but uh, just the descriptions of Sasquatch seems to be a lot larger than, you know, humans in general. I don't know. I don't know. Personally, I know a lot of people nowadays, they gravitate, oh, they're forest beings. And there's this whole kind of weird new age section of the Sasquatch community. They get really offended if you suggest that Sasquatch is an ape. And especially if you remind them that humans are also apes, you know, we're not, not saying you're identical to a gorilla, but we share you know, we're clearly somewhat related to them. I mean, we deviated, obviously, for whatever reasons, quite dramatically. But uh, people get really offended by the whole forest people kind of thing. And, oh, there are people and that sort of thing. And I don't think we've established that. I mean, they're very similar. They seem to be, if they are you know, some sort of flesh and blood creature, they're clearly more similar to us than any other great ape that's alive at the moment that we know about. I mean, just looking at the alleged footprint shape and comparing that to, like, say, a gorilla foot, where they have sort of a deviant toe and that sort of thing. Very different. Um, so clearly a little bit closer to us, but yeah, I've heard, like I said, I've heard that theory too, that they might be people, but I, I don't see how that development would go 
I mean, it would have to be a quite a, a long period of time. Um, but uh, yeah, there's just a lot to think about there. I, it, I suppose it could be anything's possible, but uh, I do probably lean towards it being something that sort of convergent evolution where something that uh, was separate from us and just happened to adapt kind of side by side to us in a way in these wilderness areas, they don't need tools or fire, any of that kind of stuff to survive. Uh, they're much more in tune with their environment, which, you know, in some ways is a kind of romantic idea, right. Of some sort of a being that's kind of in tune with nature, as opposed to us where, you know, we're very destructive and we live in these structures and we're disconnected now, I think more than ever from the natural world. You mentioned being closely related to apes. Um, we're also, uh, very closely related to pigs. Um, so <laughs> right. is that, is that, is that, yeah, is that the new thing where, where, where we get pig man now and, 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 and what have you, cause you know, all these theories and what have you, I can see where people are like sitting around, I, especially with like pig man, I can just see a, a bunch of people sitting around. I'm, I'm pro whatever you want to do, smoking some weed. And they're like, you know, man, you know, we're like 99%, you know, close to, to pigs too. What if that's where we get pigment? And then the legend just got born right. out of that. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's just one of those funny, funny little topics, you know, but we are. And, you know, with the whole, they don't use fire and what have you, you know, you go back to the native Americans, you know, uh, some of their stories, uh, they claim that they did used to use fire and, and because they did and they figured out, oh, it's given our, our place away. And right. these Native Americans, these humans, or these hairless Sasquatch, or these hairless apes are coming after us and killing us. Well, we got to figure out a different way. And, you know, then they move to not, you know, going back to a raw diet, not cooking with fire or whatever, a more primitive lifestyle. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, because at the end of the day, like, like Wes Germer says, no one has one in their garage and and they're not you know studying it you know what i mean yeah. until that day comes then, then we'll have you know full proof yeah and then we might still have tons of questions i mean it's still maybe a, yeah. a big unknown because if, even if sasquatch were be proven in one area of the country that doesn't mean anything i mean you up in the olympic peninsula compare that to the florida everglades totally different environments if you're able to establish well they live in one area could they exist in this other area there's reports how big are the differences are we talking you know, subspecies, or are we just talking like with the mountain lions where you have ones that have adapted to being in the swamp, ones that live in the, the uh, mountains in the Rockies or whatever, and the ones that were formerly in the Eastern United States where they're all essentially the same animal, just different adaptations. Could you take one of these critters from the Rocky Mountains and put them in the Everglades and expect them to thrive? They, they might die. It's like if you took a Sasquatch from the mountains and put them in a swamp, what would happen, you know? Uh, so I think there's a lot of questions, even if there were to be a discovery anytime soon, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more questions and answers and, you know, it'd be nice to uh, kind of move it in a different direction, I suppose, uh, if that something like that were to happen and it would just open up, I think, a lot of possibilities for those of us that are already kind of into the subject. You just have so many more people coming into it, uh, bringing new ideas, people, a lot of people obviously with scientific and academic backgrounds as well. So I think it would just kind of move into a di in a different direction if Sasquatch were to be proven tomorrow, for example, somebody came out with a body or had irrefutable DNA or some sort of evidence. Just to uh, come up with a theory, uh, maybe that was the deterring spot was fire, for example, because assumably 
when the first human, uh, I don't want to say invented fire, but discovered fire, um, there was probably a bunch that were like, ooh, fire. And then there was the other side that were like, nah, man, like, that's scary. No, I don't want to do that. So maybe that set of humans started to adapt to where they had fire as being something that they used so they didn't need to have hair. Um, and we kind of built into like how we are now where the other side that decided like, no, we don't want to use fire. Um, they adapted to have more hair um, and it kind of made up that difference of not having that key component. Cause realistically, if you break it down, that's probably one of like the, the key component differences between humans and Sasquatches is the use of fire. And you know, they may have the ability and know how to start a fire, um, but maybe they only would use it in extreme conditions because, again, they're adapted to not necessarily need fire if they're completely covered in hair. And even just the way they eat, for example, um, after years and years of always having meat that's cooked, um, like our stomachs and everything have gotten used to our food being cooked that certain way, where, again, if we never discovered fire and weren't really messing with fire, then we would have adapted to be like any other animal on this planet where you can just bite into another animal and eat the flesh and call it a day. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it works in terms of adaptations like that being that drastic. I know animals, you know, elk, mountain lions, that sort of thing, they can adapt their behavior within a generation or two. If there's a certain environmental factor that changes, they can adapt their behavior. But I mean, if, you know, the timeline with humans and how, you know, modern human came about a few million years, supposedly, uh, I don't know if that would be enough time to have such a drastic difference in terms of size and uh, the way things. And I think if you look at the Sasquatch feet and some of the you know footprints, credible footprints, that sort of thing, handprints that have been found, they really, they might look human-like, but actually you know, there's folks like Dr. Jeff Meldrum and Cliff Berrickman and others that have spent on ungodly amount of time looking at these footprints. They, they diverge quite differently than human being than humans do it. I mean, with an alleged mid-tarsal break, as well as, a lot more pressure being put humans tend to when they're walking their foot sort of on an arch you know we have a sort of the the rest of the inside of our foot doesn't really ever make it onto the ground whereas with sasquatch prints they seem to be quite flat and really pressing into the ground more which is a different kind of weight dis distribution and the size some of these things are reported i don't know if it would be enough time even a few million few million years for something to change that drastically um, but again, I mean, I've heard, I've heard the, the theories before about Sasquatch being a group of people, uh, obviously a lot, a lot of Native Americans, certain tribes talked about, they were like a, a lost tribe. They're the ones that live up in the mountains. Uh, they're, you know, they're this or that, and there's different stories. Oh, they're, or they're cannibals in this area. They come and steal our women and children, or they're the protector of the woods. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way we as humans interact with our environment. Um, a story that I was told uh, uh, quite a few years ago by Dr. Anna Nakaris, who is a study slow lorises, which are these small primate-like creatures in parts of uh, Indonesia and Southeast Asia. She talked about while studying these creatures, talking to different tribes in the area, different local groups, and there was a four distinct groups that all kind of lived in the same region that had slow lorises. And to one group, if you were to see one of these creatures, you were cursed and it was, it was, you know, it was a bad thing to come across this animal to another group fairly close by. You see one of these creatures, it's a good sign. It's a good omen to others. It was a devil and you should kill it right away when you see it. There was all these different interpretations that people living in the same area had for literally the same animal. I mean, the slow lorises they were interacting with in that area would have been the same species, maybe just a subspecies or something, but it's the same exact animal that has the same behaviors yet 
people were interpreting it differently for whatever reason, you know, maybe something happened, you know, they, something bad happened after they saw one and that became the local story. So I think a lot of this has to do with the way we as people do. And I think a lot of these native American stories too, uh, you know, where there's stories of the Jonaqua and the Zonaqua in the, in the British Columbia area, the wild woman of the woods and all these different kinds of stories. Um, I have heard stories about fire usage though, there are old stories of the the Yeren in China or the, the wild people out there supposedly, you know, using fire to cook things when people leave camp and they would come in. That's at least, you know, that's not really a, an official story. It's just something I've read through, you know, somebody's writing about kind of Yeren stories from the past. Uh, and there's at least one encounter I cannot recall from where I know this from. And it, it's going to bug me now, but somebody told me that, there was some sort of a story out, I think, in Washington, Oregon, or along those lines where a Sasquatch had put a fire out. So there was somebody who had been camping and there were coals and they had actually witnessed this thing coming and stopping the fire completely out. So, I mean, if that is a real encounter, that maybe would indicate these things are at least aware of what fire is and what it's capable of. I mean, uh, being something very intelligent out in the woods, you could have a lightning strike on a tree, a dry year, and it burns thousand acres of your forest so you know just by you seeing that being pushed out of your habitat you would automatically assume that fire is something bad and you see these humans using it you know maybe in destructive ways or using it so you might develop an awareness of what fire is i mean i don't i don't see how that's a stretch at all um to to aware to be aware of what it is could is it a stretch to say well maybe they might you know use a fire to cook something i don't know i mean <laughs> It, that that's you know kind of a tough one to to square away but i suppose it's not out of the realm of possibility not at all and uh that makes a lot more sense you know what i mean like uh, being a wild animal and you see a lightning strike and next thing you know your whole home is being burnt you know so it comes across a small campfire and it's going to automatically think oh that's going to totally ruin my home here and, or even a human doing you know, it. You could have a human yeah. uh, forest fires get caused by humans all the time. So you may be, oh, this thing may have said, well, I got to stop this. You know, these people left this fire this way. Let me put it out because otherwise we could have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Alex, this has been a great conversation and we would love to have you back anytime. Um, you have an open platform, open door here. Uh, let people know one more time where they can find your documentaries. Um, I know you're on YouTube. Do you have any that have made it to Amazon by any chance yet? So not my documentaries personally. Well, actually, yeah, On the Trail of Champ is on Amazon, but you can also watch it on YouTube. But the best place to go is my website, which is petikovmedia.com. That's P-E-T-A-K-O-V media.com. So the reason I say that is it has links to everything I've mentioned. So if you go to the film and video section, I'll have links to literally every documentary. Um, and then you could just go to the small town monsters, uh, website. And there's a lot of films that they put up on Amazon and other places there, but the YouTube small town monsters has not only my series, but other documentaries, other interviews will put out and other kind of Bigfoot encrypted related stuff. So that's a great place to kind of go check some of that stuff out as well. And the Bigfoot beyond the trail series, there's a whole big playlist on the channel. You can binge watch those. I know, a lot of people have told me they've been doing that over the holidays. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I know uh, the ones that I have seen, I, I personally really enjoy. And again, keep up the great work. Uh, and 
even whoever you team up with, you know what I mean? It just keep pushing uh, in the direction of, you know, being somewhat skeptical, but looking for truth and, and not making it a big time production. And, you know, you turn around and, you know, people in that, that area might be ripping off some of your work, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and if they are, Hey, you know, that, that that's a nod to you and, 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 you know, the direction of, of, you know, your investigation into if this thing is actually real. So, yeah. And if I could just add one more point on that, I mean, part of it is, you know, a lot of the folks I work with and myself were interested in this topic. I mean, I'd be researching it on my own, regardless of filming it or not, but this is a cool opportunity because we kind of get to bring people along for it. And the, the philosophy is, you know, if we're on some of these areas, you hear so many of these encounters, the way they happen are randomly for the most part, overwhelming majority of people who see these things are either something happened, they were camping or they crossed the road. So we, we, we think, okay, what is the one common thing with a lot of these sightings? People either don't know what Sasquatch is. They don't believe in it. They're blown away. They're too, you know, dazed to react. Everyone's got cell phones and, and you know, their cell phones aren't as great as they, you'd imagine the woods as a lot of people would imagine. But um, our idea is, okay, we're in the right place, at the right time with the right equipment if something does happen, I really hope we can document it. And that's absolutely what we strive for. So hopefully at some point we turn up with something, you know, uh, or somebody can take that philosophy, please take that idea, learn your equipment, get out in the woods. And if you see one of these things, film it and, and document it and try to look for other trace evidence and, and secondary evidence. You can kind of not just film something, but also find prints and maybe hair samples. So you have multiple forms of evidence for one event. So uh, uh, hopefully we can pull something out, if not others. Absolutely. I think we need to kind of move more in that direction, but that's kind of the idea behind it. And we're going to keep doing what we do until we uh, either can't do it anymore or get to get too decrepit or injured from, from uh, too many adventures, but we'll keep on trying. Any, uh, any closing words, Shane? Um, questions, no, comments? No, I was just going to say uh, kind of the same thing you're saying, man. I appreciate the way that you do your research because you have to have a healthy bit of skepticism, especially if you're, you know, going in uh, researching cryptids in particular, because otherwise you just end up with the entertainment factor. So I definitely right. like what you're doing, man. And uh, I definitely appreciate you coming on the show and uh, sharing all your stories with us, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. I loved going on the uh, whole champ conversation at the start there i don't get to talk about that topic i feel like a lot anymore it's mostly bigfoot stuff now so i like to be able to talk about some other stuff but thanks for having me on guys it's always good to have a mix man <laughs> definitely 100 all right ladies and gentlemen thank you for tuning in to another fun and exciting uh interview uh we had filmmaker documentary alex petikov on and wow i i can't encourage you guys enough to go over to youtube look up small town monsters go to his website everything will be posted in the show notes um it, it, i tried not to fanboy too much but i have uh, watched quite a many of his documentaries and it, and it was fun um if you've had encounters and want to share them reach out to us on instagram or telegram um inquiries of our reality you can hit Shane up. You can hit me up on uh, my third eye podcast. Uh, just anywhere we put shit out, hit us up. And you can also go over to uh, the old email, which is uh, bizarre encounters at outlook.com and send us an encounter there or something you want us to read. Or if you want to be a guest, uh, we, we always encourage people to come out of their shells and come on a non judgmental uh, podcast and 
share your story. And if you have a story and you want your voice changed, Shane has the technology and means to do that. And uh, I guess with that, uh, Shane, uh, what about our sponsor if they want to be a sponsor? So if anybody is, say, not just somebody that has has had an encounter, but also like researchers, authors, all that kind of stuff, uh, if you would like to be a guest on the show, definitely hit us up also. Um, if anybody's interested in sponsoring the show in any way, shape, or form, um, definitely want to hear from you. And maybe we can work something cool out. Maybe we can do some future collabs, kind of like how we do with Joe. But yeah, we'll never know unless you hit us up. So definitely go and hit us up. And uh, if there's any topics that you guys want us to do a deep dive on in the show, I know we've been really, really heavy with the interviews lately. Um, we will start incorporating some more of those deep dives in. Uh, I have a few that I've been working on and I've been writing out. Uh, it's just a matter of getting any everything finalized and uh, having the date set up. But yep, yeah, we'll be popping some more back into those as time goes on. Uh, maybe we'll start leaving a little bit of space in between some interview episodes if that's some stuff that you guys want to hear. But give us some feedback on also if you guys like our deep dives or if you like the interviews specifically because we want to have a combination of the two. But if you guys don't like the deep dives and you guys like the interviews, then we can start pushing it more that way. But um, also... Going back to what I was getting at before I went on that tangent, um, if anybody feels they have anything they can contribute to the show whatsoever, uh, hit us up. And uh, if you don't want to directly email us, you can always go to our link tree and there's a submission form up at the top that'll go directly to our email and then uh, we can email you back from there. Uh, make it a little bit easier on your aspect of you know not having to type out the email. You can just go straight to the page, type out what you got to say, send it in, and then uh, yeah, we'll shoot your reply back as fast as we can. And uh, every single thing that we've mentioned uh, is all available under the link tree. Uh, the link tree is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash Bizarre Encounters, and that's spelled B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, because like I say, at the end of every show, it's spelled multiple ways, but that's the way that we spell it. So with that, I hope all of you guys enjoyed the show, and uh, don't forget to keep it bizarre. Be bizarre. bizarre.